Welcome to FRT, the IIF podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. My name is Adrian Dedekase. I'm a policy advisor at the IIF, and I'm joined today by Sarah Rongi, the global head of FCC regulatory strategy for Credit Suisse here in Washington. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So in today's episode, we're going to cover machine learning and AML, and we're following up on a comprehensive report that we published in October 2018, where we surveyed 59 member institutions, 54 banks, and five insurers on their application of machine learning to prevent financial crime, what areas they focus on, and the challenges that they encounter. This is broadly um, within our previous work on machine learning in credit risk that we did in March 2018, and a subsequent paper on explainability that we published in November 2018. If any of our listeners want to hear more about those two topics, I strongly recommend listening to the FRT episodes 3 and 17, where we cover both of them, and check out our website where we have the papers available for download. So, with that out of the way, Sarah, jumping right in, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background on, on AML? Again, thank you so much for having me. I think this is a really important discussion. My background in AML is entirely prior to the last year or so at the U.S. Treasury Department within the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, which is really what I view as the home center of all things AML policy in the United States. And I had the good fortune of heading the policy office, the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which developed um, strategic approaches and solutions to all things related to money laundering, terrorist financing, and proliferation financing. Um, I was at Treasury for about 10 years. Um, and that office looks at both the domestic framework in the U.S. in terms of its adequacy and sufficiency and also works very closely with all of our global counterparts. Before I left, I was head of the U.S. delegation to the Financial Action Task Force, also engaged very heavily with our G7 and G20 counterparts, thinking holistically about how to address the challenges and vulnerabilities related to money laundering and terrorist financing at a global level. I joined CS last September in this role which is really looking at how to coordinate centralized communication with our supervisors globally around the work that CS is undertaking. But it obviously has a broader remit as I, as I work within the institution that's at an interesting point in its development, an exciting time related to compliance. Great. So thanks. Uniquely positioned for this topic. So jumping right in, just to set the scene, there is no definition of what machine learning actually is, right? Um, but at least the usual distinction, and we, we, we grappled with this in our work, but the usual distinction is made between supervised and unsupervised learning, one being a way to build a model out of data that can make more precise predictions, more accurate predictions, um, and reuse the results it came up with, the other one being more towards analyzing data and identifying patterns that you hadn't seen before, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So based on that, why are we looking at this as an industry? What's the, what's the promise? Where are we going with this? It's a great question. And as we said briefly before we started, this could be a, a two-hour discussion. And <laughs> just to take a step back and think about the context, whenever I think about innovation and technology related to AML today, I think the question is, why are we talking about this now? You know, what is it about the current environment that is making this, if not the topic of the du jour everywhere, like the second one? It's incredibly important. Why is that? There are a number of reasons. I mean, part of it gets to obviously where the technology is. Some would argue who know better than I, including yourself, that we've been there for a while. It has a lot to do with, I think, a growing frustration within the AML community, whether that's the private sector or the public sector, 
to demonstrate the effectiveness of the global regime that was developed post 9-11. We spent a lot of time developing standards, pushing jurisdictions to implement regulations and laws now to enforce them, to demonstrate they're mm. effective. But there's no way really to have a, an effective scorecard, either as an institution or as a jurisdiction. FATF gets there to a certain extent, but as with anything, it does get to be imperfect. And so the point is that when we talk about the costs of compliance within institutions, the enforcement environment that is clear, you can easily rack and stack the cost of compliance to the firms. But it's very difficult then to come out, and no one has, to say, well, this, and this is the benefits to the regime more broadly. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting time, I view, as sort of these frustrations and dialogue in a, in a really good way going on in the U.S. jurisdictions and at the global level to now focus on how it is that we can improve the efficiencies and effectiveness of the system. So it's like, I view it as sort of a perfect storm of events that's brought us to where we are and why we're, why we're talking about that today. You mentioned the frustrations and inefficiencies, and I think the first part is extremely important, the, the will to build a stronger system, making sure that what we designed actually works, speaking to a cultural change within the institutions. Yeah. Now, within the institution on the lower level, um, the inefficiencies, the frustrations, what are those in day-to-day? I just think of it as imagine that you go to work every day and your job is to effectively, not to identify problems, but to identify when a problem has been flagged that actually isn't one and remediate it. You spend more time trying to demonstrate why something isn't a risk to the firm than researching and mitigating risk that is. Whether that's in the context of transaction surveillance and certainly highlighted very clearly and well in your report about the energy and time that's spent on demonstrating that something isn't a problem mm -hmm. versus researching and providing useful information to the firm. And I think the way you know we've collectively talked about this is trying to get to a place where experts can spend, instead of 80% of the time on things that aren't important, 80% of the time on things that are. So starting to flip that is critically important. Being in that case, how to get a better result out of your monitoring system and focus the, the resources of the people that are working on it. In terms of identifying threats, potentially, risk mm -hmm. assessments, mm -hmm. is, that, is, is that an area where we can make progress when we, with the huge amount of data that we have? There's no question. And I think, you know, this discussion quickly goes to, are we talking about what's the pool of data? You know, is it, is it one firm's data? Is it one firm's data within one jurisdiction? There are a lot of discussions now about pooling data, government data, and private sector data. There's no question, I mean, rationally, that you have more information together and collectively it should be more useful. And certainly AI is a wonderful way to think about more efficiently and effectively using that data. I think that's the point. The other thing I'll just make on the frustration point is that everybody wants to go home at the end of the day and feel like they made a difference. And even if that's you know, filing a report versus clearing a report. This is all about creating an environment where people feel like, okay, they've done something meaningful today versus, versus not, right? So, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, it's about, as a firm, feeling like the system has reached a, a level of maturity that we're spending our time mitigating risk, not just filing paperwork or doing all of that. AI absolutely provides a lot of potential there at making us smarter, um, as a community. But again, not just not just the private sector. It's applicable to everyone and the government as well. For example, just as a, as a tangential note, 
I mean, these are all the global discussions. It's always important when we think about new technologies to make sure that we're not talking about only the private sector having responsibilities, not just understanding what they are, but what the utility may be. And a lot of the things that we could talk about, data integration challenges, huge issue within government too. Resources to effectively mine and analyze data. An issue too, mm-hmm. you know. Feedback loops. Absolutely, yeah. that's what I meant about shared frustration. These mm-hmm. are not problems that the private sector faces alone. Collectively, we can all do better. You mentioned that the stronger automation. I think you alluded to that point in your comments on enabling the the people. The the one thing you always hear about AI is the rise of the machines. Mm-hmm. The big are we are we leaving everything to the machines? Um, is that a problem? Is 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 that even the goal? Is that is it the goal here to leave everything to the machines and let them do anything, or is it more towards enabling people? What's the where, where are we going with this, and where should we go? It's a really interesting question. I have actually heard some people talk about this and suggest that within within their firms that um, there was a lot of concern about not having a lot more human interaction with data, whatever else. The basis being that machines make mistakes. And I thought it was such a funny thing to say because, as we all know, of course, humans make mistakes. So it seems like a funny argument to make to (laughs) me that the basis for which not to rely on a machine is because they can't be trusted. So that is, look, I'm I'm a bit old school, um, so I must confess as I think about things, I certainly imagine a human element to it. But I think of it as guided versus having humans needing to do everything. And all of these things, I'm, I'm a big pilot person. I'm a big proof of concept person. It's a really good example that we have to learn together and grow together and, and see what's possible. I certainly am not an advocate for sort of like one says turning off the machine, turning off the humans. I, mm-hmm. I definitely still like that. In the context of these discussions, key issues get to be things like the SAR filing decision. Is that is that done by, is that automated or is that always have to be a human that makes that decision. There could be nuance there, depends on what the report is. If it's a black and white reporting requirement, like we have in some respects in the US, that's one thing. But if it gets to suspicion, you know, so that kind of thing does make me think, well, I feel like we need humans. That said, I'm sure if somebody, again, come to me and demonstrate the examples, then that's a conversation worth having. That's very consistent with what we had in in terms of responses to our report mm-hmm. that Nobody's really looking to replace all their people. Mm-hmm. It's about making them more efficient. Absolutely. Focusing their time. Absolutely. You know, work smarter, not right. harder. That's <laughs> a very good point. Um, in that concept, explainability, another issue that we always see within the uh, AI space, without going into the same level of detail than we did in our explainability mm-hmm. paper, but in general, when we talk about machine learning and AML, is explainability of a machine learning model an issue? Can it be tackled? And we have a statement in our report that I'd like to put out there and mm-hmm. get your thoughts, is that the need for explainability depends on the use case. Mm-hmm. What will be your thoughts in that context? It's a good one. You know, how much information is really required mm-hmm. in terms of explaining these things? And I suppose this is the kind of thing that it depends on. It really depends on who the audience is. And certainly in the AML space, you have a lot of tremendous, incredibly technologically savvy people in AML who are probably going to be more comfortable than others. And so I think part of it ultimately is understanding who your audience is and is describing it. In other words, there are some people who are going to be very uncomfortable. Just, you know, like I'm somewhere in the middle. It can be, it can be generational. It can be 
educational, it can be the way your brain works or how you do or do not understand technology. Part of that is just sort of putting all of it into context and thinking about it. But again, I think this is a really good example of using use cases, as you know here, but you actually using them to demonstrate in different circumstances what we may or may not work. And again, I think this comes back to people's comfort around what machines do versus what humans do. The need basically to explain, okay, this is what we're doing here, transporting what the technology actually yeah. does yeah. in the end. So that's where there probably is a deficit. I think so. And I think the important thing on this gets to then how does that translate to your, because when I think about the audience for that, it's also your exam ultimately. Mm. And that's a whole other question about collectively how we get there. What are, what are our expectations for them? Um, and so I think, again, it's always about who the, who is the audience and and how it is that, that you can articulate that. But yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's maybe an area where cooperation would help to mm-hmm. redefine together what Absolutely. our expectations are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely something that the IF can <laughs> try and take up. Absolutely. Definitely. And, we've, and uh, we, we've had various engagements with regulators. This is something that I think I can disclose here. Regulators, wherever we talk to them across the globe, have been very open to discuss yeah. what this technology can do mm-hmm. um, to share with us what they learned, what the industry has identified. So there is also a call to our to our member firms and to everybody to not be afraid of their regulator in that, in that case. Mm-hmm. Reach out. Absolutely. Speak. Absolutely. Now, um, in terms of challenges, another one that we heard, the biggest one that was mentioned is data yeah. in, in all its beauty yeah. from data quality in legacy systems to data sharing restrictions to data accessibility, how to even get the data that you need. What's your view on that? And what's your what's your experience in a global institution like Pretty Suisse, yeah. right? With all these fragmented rules. Yeah. This is one of the issues that I understood and I spent a lot of time on in terms of data when I was at the Treasury Department and I understood it was a challenge. And yet knowing all of that the reality dwarfed my understanding of what a huge challenge it was. And as you note, it cuts across different issues. Um, the first just has to do with integrating data. So just bringing the ability to bring all the data together based on things like legacy systems or acquisition of new firms. So different platforms, different systems, right? So certainly we as a global firm operate different systems in different locations for different reasons. And they do, may or may not even talk to each other. So that's sort of the data integration challenge, which has to be accompanied with data privacy, bank secrecy mm-hmm. issues. But then the question is, even if we could integrate it, are we going to be allowed to integrate it? Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. So I think we're spending a lot of time trying to integrate our data, um, but there are real barriers about who within our own firm we can share and who we cannot. And then the other key issue is data quality. So one of the benefits potentially of integrating your data is the ability to identify inconsistencies in your information. For example? For example, even just basic things like, you know, names, you know, misspelling of names, or maybe in one location you collected certain information about your customer that you book in another location. Mm -hmm. You integrate this data and you're able to see, okay, actually there's inconsistency here, not for bad reasons, maybe you updated your, you know, you had periodic review in one location. Regardless, the point is the ability to look holistically, mm-hmm. which is an, which is a related piece here and something that Credit Suisse is spending a lot of resources on, which ultimately, why? Why do we want to integrate our data? We want to integrate our data because it allows us to look across the firm holistically at who our clients are and how they're operating across our firm. 
the basics of AML in terms of risk management, and yet nobody can do it because of the, what the broader environment is around data privacy and bank secrecy. I think that's a very, very important message that we try to send. It's not as easy as many people think to share information across, even within your own firm, yeah. about the same exact customer. Yeah. And that's a huge risk. And yeah. there is a case to be made, I think, that to prevent financial crime, data sharing in certain aspects should be at least, let's say, revisited. That's putting it kindly or modestly, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, I mean, I, think I always just break it down to simple, simple examples. You have a global firm. We have a client who goes to one location and he's turned down okay, for risk reasons. He then goes to another location and maybe they have different information because either information isn't holistically. So I don't mean about it being turned down, but I mean in terms of the information that client is providing to us and what we're able to gather about that client. We may or may not have any insight into whether or not another location turned them down. Or uh, the same idea, I'm off-boarded somewhere by our firm. I still maintain an account at another point, and and we're not allowed to tell each other. I would love anyone to explain to me why that's a good idea for our firm. And certainly from a regulator's perspective, appropriately, the expectation is that we're able to do that. That's a very good point. And I think, in, of course, thinking of all of this within the reasonable guidelines of banking secrecy and where privacy comes in, that's something that's just as important. Nobody's trying to get rid of banking secrecy and no, get rid of, bank, of privacy. Not. That's the basis of our work. That's absolutely right. No, no, no. It's incredibly important. And I don't mean to diminish. And I think as you introduced it as appropriate, which is to say there must be ways and should be ways that within legal frameworks, there are um, allowances and exceptions for sharing information. Good to hear. Now, um, before we get to the end, maybe another a last question, putting it out there. Do you think that the AML framework as we have it today is ready and adequate? to allow an innovation such as machine learning to be implemented, or do we do we still need some work there? I think it's not a framework question. I think our framework is fine. It's like policies and procedures too, right? It's like, mm. I think the framework's fine, but it's the execution that needs work. I sort of call it AML version 4.0, which is where we should be headed. A universe in which all of these things, you know, it's sort of a new way of thinking about data, risk management, and technology all come together. Just as you said, governments are incredibly excited and, in principle, supportive of mm-hmm. all of these ideas around technology. But it's always talked about in the context of what we as firms are doing. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being a little bit bifurcated, even though governments are coming out with statements such as in the U.S. And that's all positive. But you actually have to bring these pieces together. Um, and I think the important piece about innovation is the partnership between the private sector and the public sector and partnership in my mind requires everyone to take risk. Mm-hmm. So it can't just be the private sector that's saying, we're going to innovate, we're going to try this and we're going to see if it works. We need a, we need a partner who's shoulder to shoulder with us and the government that's going to say, look, we're going to take some risks too in order to enable you to pursue this and feel like we are in this together. And I think that is still a work in progress. So it's basically more the issue of how do we implement the framework, be it yeah. on the national level or the firm itself, yeah. um, that needs tweaking and the cooperation. And, and fundamentally, how do we get from where we are today mm-hmm. to a universe in which we see firms of all shapes and sizes implementing these technologies 
and doing crazy things like mm. filing fewer SARS notes, having far fewer false positives, and having everybody say that outcome is one we're comfortable with and mm. that we think is, is actually we're more effective. How do we get from where we are today? I think that's a that's an absolute perfect way to uh, <laughs> to end this. Thank you. So just just to recap couple highlighted points that I wrote down while, while we were discussing. Number one, there is enormous promise in that technology to strengthen AML. The other thing is AI or machine learning does not mean to use what you're saying before. We're not turning off the human. <laughs> um, we need the humans about empowering the human and guiding yeah. the people that work in our firms, right? And for good reason. We need to get the data issue sorted, both at the firm level and at the framework level. And what we need to think of as a next step is how do we implement, how do we execute the framework that we have, focusing on public and private partnerships and get there together. Is that about right? Perfect. Okay, <laughs> great. So, first of all, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This concludes today's episode of FRT. If our listeners want to hear more about innovation and financial crime compliance, I also recommend listening to episode 13 of FRT, where I interviewed Tony Wicks, the head of financial crime compliance at SWIFT at last October's Cyboss in Sydney. Looking ahead, we have a number of interesting FRT episodes coming up, so we hope that you will all listen in again. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>